This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. Big news yesterday, of course, is the uh, the Sudbury by-election uh, trial that has been going on. Two liberals, of course, uh, were charged with a number of different offenses and faced jail time in this. I mean, this is pretty serious stuff. But it all ended yesterday when a judge made a ruling that basically tossed the whole thing out. Joining us to talk about this is Alan Carter. Alan, of course, is the co-anchor of Global News at 5.30 and 6, and, of course, the host of Focus Ontario, which is seen Saturdays and Sundays on Global TV. How are you doing this morning, Alan? Well, I'm great. Thanks very much. Appreciate being on the show. Always great to have you with us. Thanks so much for this today. Were you surprised by the uh, the judge's actions yesterday? Not really. I mean, <clears throat> having been really in the courtroom for one day when Wynn was in trial and then just monitoring it from afar, it was pretty clear from the outset that the Crown was outmatched in this case and that the the case itself was pretty wafer thin. Because keep in mind what we're talking about here is the definition of a candidate. That's really how the case hinges, is whether or not uh, Andrew Olivier, who was the candidate in the 2014 general election, is there an expectation that the failing candidate from 2014 would then be the presumed candidate going into a by-election? And the judge said that there is absolutely no reason to believe that that would be the case, and that if we ruled that, if we set a precedent for that, that that would cause havoc and chaos in the political system. So keep in mind here, Bill, that, that not only were they acquitted, but they were acquitted by direct verdict, which is very rare in, politi- in, in court, where basically the judge said, you know what, defense, you don't even have to present anything. The Crown did not even meet the bar for going forward. Let's throw this out. That, that is precedent-setting and very unusual in a situation like this. But you got to think, though, Alan, I mean, these are learned people. This was the Ontario Provincial Police that launched this investigation at the behest of, of, of Gilles Besson. We can talk about that in a second. But it, it would not somebody in the Crown's officer and the OPP says, guys, I don't think we're going anywhere here. But they, they pressed on with this anyway. Well, and there are going to be questions about that. Why did that happen? Why is it that they were um, clear that, excuse me for a second, <clears throat> they, were, they, were, they understood that they could not get a criminal conviction. Remember, they charged Mr. Lougheed criminally, and then those charges were stayed, which you would have thought would have given them pause as to whether or not the viability of this case to go forward. But then they, they backed up and said, okay, if we can't get that on the criminal code, let's use it on the Election Act, which is an, a, a civil act, untried in court, and the thing looked incredibly wobbly from the get-go. Bill, keep in mind that the crown that they had in Sudbury is retiring halfway through the case. <laughs> like, they couldn't even get a crown to say, I'll take this thing from gavel to gavel. It, it was, was the attitude, hey, well, in for a penny, in for a pound, we've gone this far, we may as well finish it off? I, You know, when asked yesterday about the cause for it to go to trial, uh, Mr. Lougheed's lawyer, Mr. Lacey... Oh, sounds like we got a bit of a, a technical glitch here. Uh, we'll try to hook up again with Alan in just a couple of seconds uh, from uh, the, our global studios uh, in Toronto. Uh, talking with Alan Carter, of course, at Global News, about the uh, decision yesterday in Sudbury to uh, dismiss the charges against uh, two uh, Liberal Party folks uh, which was big deal, of course, and it was front-page news all over the country because of the implications of this and uh, and some of the accusations that went back and forth on this. And uh, as Alan just mentioned, uh, the fact that the judge basically said, look, I just tossed this whole thing out. Uh, the defense, or the, the Crown hasn't even uh, met the, the burden of proof in a situation like this uh, shocked an awful lot of people. I think we got Alan back? Good. All right. All right. Uh, all right, let me try to this one. We'll, we'll do it the old-fashioned way, then. <laughs> so, <laughs> Smoke signal. There's always a plan B here, not to worry. Uh, anyway, before we were uh, interrupted, uh, we, were, we were talking about the the, the Crown and, and moving on like this. And in all the years you've been covering politics, especially here at the provincial level, Alan, I mean, do you always hear calls from opposition MPPs to say, you know, there should be an investigation, we should charge these people, and I guess the penultimate example of that was Trump would throw her in jail and all that sort of stuff. So that's not surprising. But what do are, are we ever going to find out what was the motivation for the OPP to actually say, yeah, we're we're going to go, we're going to look into this? Was was there a smoking gun there somewhere? Well, remember that you had the tapes, and I think that that is what drove a lot of this. Is that you have these actual recordings, which is so rare. I mean, think about this, Bill. I mean, you and I both know that this is how politics is done. Sure. 
this is this is I mean, and and to suggest that the NDP or the PCs or on the federal level that this precisely this precise thing doesn't happen all the time, I think is to be naive. What what never happens is there's never anybody with a tape recorder. And in this particular case, Mr. Olivier, who is paraplegic, records his phone calls because he can't take notes. So that's why we have this. And I think that those tapes that there was a sense within the OPP and within the Crown. It's like, well, we have this evidence. We can't just drop it. We have the Premier's Deputy Chief of Staff at the time saying jobs, appointments, whatever, and that that something must be done. We must at least try to take this to court. But I think, you know, I, I think some more dispassionate analysis of the evidence they had and what was really on trial would have given the crown pause and said, you know what, we can't take this forward. What about that element, though, that you just mentioned a second ago? Because we certainly raised that as as this trial started to unfold, and I don't think it was lost on a lot of us that as Patrick Brown was uh, railing against this, and actually you've seen the TV ads uh, about you know the corruption and the trial, and Kathleen Wynne was on trial, etc., uh, that Brown was facing similar charges or variations on the theme anyway with some of the nomination processes, including one of them here in the Hamilton area as well. There's a, a certain hypocrisy to this, isn't there? Well, absolutely. I mean, for, for Brown to to point his finger at, you know, what happened in the Sudbury by-election when, you know, his own house is on fire, essentially, when it comes to the nomination process. I mean, you could line up riding after riding after riding. You mentioned Hamilton, but there's a bunch of other ones yeah. too in the Ottawa area and a bunch of places where, you know, and the and the conservatives, the PCs will tell you, well, that's because we're so popular. You know, everybody wants to run for us. It's a bad problem to have. Well, but at the bottom line, I mean, it's still politics. You know, the, the leader's still within the PC party too, because you can see him doing it. He's basically saying, oh, yeah, but I, I choose this candidate, and I choose this candidate, and I choose that candidate. And that's what Wynne did in Sudbury. She said, you know what? Glenn Tebow is a way better candidate than Olivier, who didn't win last time. And I can, get, I can get a nice feather in my cap by getting an NDP MP to cross the floor and make me look like, you know, I'm, and I think there was some hubris involved in all of this. I mean, Wynne is an extremely competitive person. I mean, for all of her activism and all of her you know, it, it, all her progressive policies, she is, you know, an elbows a knife fighter in a dark alley when it comes to politics and winning. Let me ask you about that day. Uh, you mentioned the day that, uh, that she actually went to Sudbury and testified during this trial, uh, not because she was accused, uh, as, as Patrick Brown suggests, but you, you were up there that day, Alan. You joined the, the, fe- the, the feeding frenzy, I guess, with the media. Uh, I, I just love the live shots there. And you, get, you got your number, and you were allowed to, to actually go in there and see the testimony. How, how important, how pivotal was her testimony in, in that trial in those early stages? Well, I think it was Im- important in terms of um, filling in the picture as to what exactly happened and who talked to whom and all the rest. I don't think that her evidence was particularly vital um, to the Crown or even to the defense. It, it, it more sort of shaded the outsides of, of what the key portion of this trial was about, which is, was there an inducement offered to Mr. Olivier? And the liberal contention here from the get-go is you can't bribe somebody not to do something that they can't do in the first place. And that's basically where the judge ended up. And that, that seemed to be the thrust of, of Wynn's testimony that day, wasn't it? Like, I'd already, she's, I'm paraphrasing, but she basically said, I already decided Tebow was going to be my candidate. Exactly. So he, this guy, you know, Olivier was never going to get the nomination anyway. Exactly. And that's been the point all the way along. And that's where really that the, the, the case hinges is, does he have a presumption? Does he? Does Mr. Olivier have a presumption to believe that he will be the candidate going forward? And nowhere in our political system do we say the person who ran last time gets to run next time. No, uh, and for those of us that have been around the political process for years, we can tell you that 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 there, there are no no guarantees anywhere in politics, and invariably, uh, if there's a defeated candidate in a situation like that, invariably there is a feeding frenzy among others to say, hey. Uh, maybe this is my shot. Uh, so whether it was going to be Glenn Tebow or anybody else, there was a pretty good shot that this guy was going to get challenged for the nomination regardless. Well, and go back to 2014, you know, the, the, 
what happened in, in Sudbury is that the liberals, of course, they had an incumbent. They had a uh, Mr. Bartolucci, a cabinet minister, high profile. So when he announces that he's not going to run again, the liberals had some trouble finding a good candidate. And Mr. Olivier won it. And what Ms. Wynne said on the stand was that in the, in the wake of the 2014 election results coming in, she discovered that he had not been a very good candidate that they had, the Liberals had won in places where they had not won for decades. And yet Sudbury, which had long been a Liberal bastion, goes to the NDP. It didn't seem to make any sense to the Liberals. And, and that was the play. But I come back to this, Bill, about what this tells you is something about Kathleen Wynne, which is her competitive nature sometimes, and I think in this case, gets the better of her political instincts. You wrote an interesting blog earlier this week uh, where we kind of went down some of the campaign things that Wynn has done, obviously, with the, the eye on the election that's coming up next year, and kind of a box, a checklist box, Alan, of, okay, there's the there's the, 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 the tuition thing, yeah, they sort of like that one, and then there's the uh, the hydro thing, well, not so much. But the corruption issue is, is obviously something that, that Patrick Brown and, and the PCs are playing on. Uh, they tried that in the last election before Patrick was even the leader. It was the gas plant stuff, and it was orange, et cetera. And they really tried to put that uh, Sudbury thing into that box, too, and just say, look at this huge body of work. This is terrible, the corruption. Uh, is, is, is that arrow out of the quiver right now, or are they going to continue to play at that? Well, I, definitely you saw both uh, Brown and Horvath issue statements talking about corruption and, um, you know, this— I mean, You'd think that the you'd think that the case had gone the other way. You know, it's like political corruption. But wait a second, there was an acquittal. Um, but it is this it's this narrative that the conservatives and the NDP, frankly, really hope sticks. And and it is the big fear of the liberals is that the takeaway from Sudbury and the takeaway from the data deletion trial that's ongoing in Toronto right now yeah. is, is not going to be about the case itself and the nuances, because it's incredibly complicated and, and difficult to comprehend cases, but that basically the takeaway is going to be that Kathleen Wynne has done something wrong. And so what you see the liberals doing, and this is why they have issued a notice of libel, to Patrick Brown. I don't think they're ever going to go ahead with it. I don't think that's ever going to go to court. I may, I may be wrong, but the fact of the matter is, is that the huge fear the liberals have is, is that that's going to be the takeaway with the general public, which really isn't paying as closely attention to these cases as, for example, dorks like me are. Um, it, it, so that's why every chance they can, they're getting a megaphone out and shouting from the treetops that Kathleen Wynne is not on trial. And Brown has just gifted them the megaphone to be able to do that. Well, the other side of this as well, though, and I'm by the way, I'm one of those geeks too, so I, I put myself in that number. Is is that I guess you have to ask the question: Is is the 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 message from Brown resonating, or are the people that already hate Win and the liberals hating them anyway, and just hating them more now? Uh, what about that other group of people that are saying, "Oh, we're not so sure," because it. It, it didn't it didn't stick to them during the gas plant thing. I mean, Winman won a majority government out of that. And I'm not suggesting she's going to get reelected this time. I, I, I wouldn't predict anything at this stage right now. But you, you have to wonder just where this message is resonating. Well, listen, I don't think people vote on that. You know, I, I, I really don't. I, there is, when you get a sort of desire for change, when that begins to run through the electorate, th then it's, almost impossible to stop and and really almost the logic becomes secondary i mean if you asked yourself what are the metrics uh that people vote on you might say gdp you might say economic growth you might say employment you might say all of those things well if you tally those things up liberals are doing pretty well the numbers, the numbers are good. The economy's doing well. Uh, unemployment, unemployment is down. But there is a sense that it is time for a change. And I think that that is where the opposition should be putting their chips, because you're right, Bill. I mean, last time around, it was gas plant, gas plant, gas plant, gas plant. And Kathleen Wynne came out and said, hey, I'm sorry about that. We shouldn't have done that. And everybody went, OK, fine. What, else, what are you going to do for us going forward? And Kathleen Wynne said, well, I'm going to do A, B, and C. And Tim Hudak said, I'm going to fire 100,000 people. And that's what people voted on. Yeah, exactly. 
Uh, I mean, even when Stephen Harper got elected back in 2006, I, I think there was just a general fatigue with the liberals being in power. And what was it earlier this week, I guess, uh, was the 14th anniversary of Dalton McGuinney's ascension to the to the uh, top job at Queen's Park as well, too. So it, it could just well be, uh, you know, voter fatigue where they're just saying, let's, let's give the other guys a shot. Well, and then this bill is where you see uh, Andrea Horvath and the NDP just on their knees praying for an orange wave because what they're hoping, and you'll notice that the NDP is not spending any money on advertising. They're letting the liberals and the conservatives knock each other silly on the airwaves because the hope is that come election time, when we actually get into the down dirty, into the writ, into the two or three week period before June 7th, uh, 2018, is they're hoping that that Wynn and Brown have clocked each other so hard over the head that the electorate who is desiring change is going to say, well, we can't vote for Wynn because we can't have any more of this. And this Brown fellow, I don't know about this guy. Hey, let's give Horvath a shot. And then you got 1990 all over again. Yeah, yeah well, you and I both lived through that. And and I saw that. I know we're just about out of time, but we saw that with the the response I was getting on, on, on to the talk radio was, you know, we're tired of David Peterson. We don't trust the Tories anymore. What the heck? Let's just go with the other guys and see what happens. Uh, and, I, I had David Peterson on Focus Ontario a few weeks back, and, and he still maintains that he doesn't think the electric meant to toss him out. He, he's just, you know, he's like, I, you know, I know they wanted to send me a message, but I mean, come on, uh, a Bob Ray majority. Uh, a quick story, because we're just about out of time here, but my, my dear friend, the late Lincoln Alexander, told me this story when he was the lieutenant governor back in those days. And David Peterson went to him and said he wanted to drop the written. And Link told me the story. He says, he looked at the premier and said, Mr. Premier, are you sure you want to do that? <laughs> Foreboding or what? But uh, it, uh, Peterson can laugh about it now, I suppose. <laughs> I think he laughs sort of uh, and cries bitter tears. At the same time. Alan, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for this today. We'll be watching for you at 5.30 and 6 today on Global. Awesome. I appreciate being on your show. Thanks so much. Take care. Alan Carter from Global News. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Well, the uh, local union, ATU union here that uh, runs the HSR for us, uh, is uh, working with city council right now to try to get an answer out of Metrolinks about the city council motion from almost two months ago now. That motion, of course, asked Metrolinx to uh, consider uh, ATU as the owner-operator and uh, the folks doing the maintenance on uh, the proposed LRT project that's coming up the line. And, uh, the, the, well, the gov- government hasn't responded. Metrolinx hasn't responded. And uh, there was a rally earlier this week uh, to try to gain some support for this in Toronto. Eric Tuck, of course, is the president of ATU Local 107, and uh, he joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to give us an update on this. How are you doing this morning, Eric? Good morning, Bill. How are you? Excellent, excellent. Uh, you, uh, before we get into the uh, nitty-gritty of this, you, you actually have a... a I'm going to grant you the platform here for a couple of seconds. You have something personal you want to say. Yes, absolutely, Bill. I want to do a shout-out to my wife, Cynthia. I've been married to her for 37 years. We're celebrating our anniversary today, and I wanted to take that opportunity to say happy anniversary. All right, and uh, all the best to you and Cynthia as well. Now, this, this, by the way, does not preclude... You still have to get a card and do the dinner thing, Eric. Absolutely. You understand that, don't you? <laughs> Yes, this is certainly. this is on top of that, not instead of, right? Correct. Okay, super. So let's uh, let's talk a little bit about this uh, issue. Uh, you and I have had this discussion in the past. City Council is on side with this, uh, and all we wanted was an answer from Queens Park. Uh, and uh, the phone's not ringing. The emails aren't being returned. What's going on here? Yes, we sent several letters, made several calls. Uh, we're getting no response from the province or from Metrolinx. and uh, I'm sure that's a result of them going over, uh, you know, where they're going to go next. Um, I, I don't, you know, I can't justify the delay. The reality is that the uh, memorandum of agreement that council uh, agreed to and that the province agreed to, uh, I would assume is reflected in the RFQ that was put out, the RFQ, um, in the project delivery of the, the memorandum of agreement. It clearly says the project may be delivered by Metrolinx and Infrastructure Ontario uh, by way of alternative uh, finance procurement. That may include design, build, finance, operate, and maintain. So I don't think the province or the city is locked into uh, doing all five faucets. But, you know, that's, and that's, I'm glad you brought that up because that's a very interesting point, and I think it's very relevant to the conversation here, Eric. Those who, who did not support this, and, and, and we've heard from some of those dissenting voices, said, well, this is going to throw the procurement process all out the window. We don't even know that yet. Yeah, exactly, and that's what's a little puzzling for me, and I think that the Liberals are simply sitting back. They're playing uh, the political game here. 
Uh, it's all about timing. Uh, as you know, they're going to the election polls uh, probably in June of uh, next year. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm expecting there's going to be some announcement in the next couple of weeks, but uh, I'm, I'm concerned that it may be simply that they're going to uh, proceed with the de- design, finance, and build and hold off on a decision on operate and maintain. And, uh, you know, I'm concerned that they may be doing that for political timing rather than for what's in the best interest of the city. To what end, then? I mean, who are they trying to score points with here? Well, like I'm saying, they may be trying to delay that decision until after the election, and uh, that's one of the reasons we took our fight to Toronto yesterday and started the province-wide campaign is to put the pressure on the Liberals uh, and Metrolinks to to give a decision before. Let's talk a little bit about yesterday, because uh, you had some uh, some support there uh, from a couple of other communities, uh, the cities of Mississauga, Brampton, and Toronto. You had uh, members of their transit unions there. How did that come about? Yes, as I said, I've reached out to the, the other GTHA properties where LRT is coming or projected to be coming, and, uh, you know, included them in the fight and made them understand how important this is to our transit, to keep transit public. Um, it, it's right across the province. This, this campaign now is carried across the province. Um, the fight is on. We are here to protect public transit. It's one of our assets that uh, we value very highly, and it's important to... It, it's a class issue. It really is. It's not just about uh, who can afford to buy cars and who can't. Public transit, there's a lot of people that depend on it. Just like public education and public health care, it, it's something that has to be protected. And, and, and those are all arguments that we've presented and, and talked about and debated, frankly, uh, both the pro and con on that, and we understand that. But uh, talk to us a little bit, if you could, maybe a, a quick overview, Eric, of, uh, of the situation in places like Mississauga, Brampton, and Toronto. As Toronto, of course, they've got two or three different projects going on. Uh, Mississauga and Brampton uh, are still kicking around the idea of LRT. Brampton City Council doesn't seem to be too crazy about paying for anything. So I'm not sure what the status is. But have they had any answer, any determination at all about who's going to operate the system, when and if it gets built in their cities? So so we know that Metrolinx, uh, their procurement policy, or practice, I should say, it's not even a policy, it's a practice, is to put out all five faucets, the operate, design, maintain, build, and finance. And we're, we're making it clear right across the province that we expect the, the provincial government to do it in the most responsible and affordable way to ensure that we operate and maintain with the local systems so that we can ensure that they're properly integrated and that any profits that do come out, and, and transit's not profitable, but when they, you have successful lines like the B line, that money has to go to fund the rest of the system. When they become profitable or when they become at least uh, revenue neutral, that, that then you can support the rest of the system without being a drain on the rest of the system. And that's my fear with going uh, private and allowing a private consortium. They're putting profits ahead of people. That money will not go back into the system or to help sustain the system. It will go to the, the shareholders of that company. Well, the other concern that, that piqued my interest in this whole discussion was the fact that if they don't allow this and simply say, no, you guys aren't going to be able to operate that, we're going to let uh, Consortium ABC for however, you know, they're the winning bid, then you can have a system within a system. But but you're not necessarily working in concert with the existing t- HSR system here right now. And you have to wonder uh, about, you know, whether or not you can have that transition. Uh, because we were always told, I mean, one of the big selling points of LRT right from the get-go was, look, at this is going to help. It's going to take some of the pressure off the cross-town pr- traffic. And, and we can put more money into transit, which will feed into the LRT system, so it's a win-win. But we don't know that necessarily if you've got somebody operating a system from within there that has nothing at all to do with the current HSR system. Exactly, exactly, Paul. Or, um, exactly, Bill. When you have a, you know, the hand has to fit the glove. They have to go together. And you can't have a private system running next to the public system and expect the two to work uh, cohesively as a team. Uh, the reality is that's been tried in other properties. It does not work. Uh, and in the end, it ends up putting a drain on the rest of the system. There is one sore point, though, that, that I've heard from a number of people, and I want to get your read on this, if I could, sure. too, Eric, uh, because the, the city council uh, memorandum that they passed on to Metrolinx uh, talked about you guys operating the facility, certainly, but they also talked about maintenance costs. And, and, and the sore point there is that the inference there is that, well, that means the city will cover the cost of maintenance, because, I mean, if you guys are going to do that, 
then it's it's expected that well that means that we have to pay the bill for that uh and that wasn't supposed to be part of the original uh, lrt deal the, the province said they were going to build it on, and pay for the maintenance costs as well uh is that putting an undue pressure and, and burden on taxpayers to to go through with that part of, the, of what you're proposing Bill, at the end of the day, do you, do you think a private company is going to come in here and maintain your system without making any money on it? So they have to make money on it. Where does that profit come from? It, it comes from the fare box. It comes from the rest of the system. The reality is we're not going to get something for nothing. The, the uh, provincial government has said they're willing to invest a billion dollars here, and I appreciate the investment. I really do, and I think Hamilton deserves it, and it's our time. But you're not going to get a private company to come here and maintain your vehicles at cost or below cost. The reality is they're in business to make money. So those vehicles have to be maintained no matter what. The uh, 30-year life cycle on them, uh, there's a, a lot of it is under maintenance warranty. And again, you're dealing with Bombardier, so we don't know how well that's going. Yeah, how's that uh, working out? That's going to work <laughs> for us. The reality is we're not going to get free maintenance for the next 30 years. It has to be paid for whether it's through the local uh, uh, taxpayer base or the provincial taxpayer base. At the end of the day, there's one taxpayer. We've got to remember that. 2014, the Auditor General put out the uh, report saying that over $8 million was wasted on 3Ps. We have to stop this at some point, Bill, and say, look, we're leaving our kids not legacies like we're left for us in public transit, public hydro, public health care. We're leaving debt, huge debt on the cost of privatization and, and shareholders uh, lining their pockets. We have to stop and turn this train around. There's another element to this, too. That, and again, we're kind of playing in the dark here. And this is, I think, one of the the, the very frustrating elements of this this whole scenario, Eric. Uh, we don't know who's going to bid on this. I mean, the, you know, Metrolink says they've already sent uh, this request out for interest to see who, who who's out there. But, you know, it's theoretically, suppose five companies respond. And, and maybe all five of them say, yeah, yeah, we'd, we'd like to build this thing. We, we've got the, the know-how, and the, but, you know, we don't want to maintain it. I mean, you, you may win this thing by default, but right. Metrolinx is not being forthright with information here, so we, we can't really comment on any of this stuff. And, uh, you know, for a, a, a process that's supposed to be rather transparent, uh, the, boy, there's an awful lot of fog around here. You're right, Bill. You know, Metrolinx, uh, through their procurement policy, they, they've always kept things in the dark. They haven't been open and transparent from day one. Um, but that's yeah. that's an offshoot of provincial policy. And I talked with Lloyd Ferguson about that yesterday, about some other construction projects. And the province invariably insists on using their procurement uh, uh, you know, policies in this. We saw that happen with the stadium. And where did that get us? So, you know, the thing cost a lot more, took a lot longer to fix. And it was basically because we were told to butt out and these guys have to follow the provincial rules. I'm not, so, I, I'm not confident in the provincial rules. I'm not confident and I'm not comfortable because at the end of the day, as I said, it's it's the taxpayer that's going to get left holding the bag. We have to make sure that we get the best bang for our buck. And it's not just the best bang today, but the best bang going forward. You have to remember, this billion dollars investment is going to provide a lot of jobs. Those jobs have to be uh, support the community benefits. You know, there has to be some community benefits with this, and, and part of the community, ongoing community benefits, is ensuring that you have good jobs, jobs that pay properly, jobs that have pensions. Most of the private sector uh, that are in transit today that are taking on these projects, the big concern, there's no pensions involved, there's no health care benefits, and although they're matching today's wages, there's no incremental increases to meet future um, cost of living. So the reality is you're creating uh, jobs that basically are not going to sustain the, the long term for the community. What's, what's the next step for you guys? You had the rally uh, at the Metrolinx headquarters in Toronto, of course. Uh, did, did anybody come outside the front door and talk to you guys, or did they just kind of carry on with their business? No, they, they've uh, kind of stonewalled us. They haven't come out and spoke to us at all. Uh, but the reality is the next step is just as we did here in Hamilton, we started reaching out to our passengers. We're not just, you know, now we have 15,000 transit workers across the GTHA uh, working on a campaign that is going to reach out to our passengers. You know, you've got uh, millions of riders throughout the GTHA that depend on public transit every day. We're now going to get them involved in this campaign. 
We have uh, lots of endorsements. The uh, Ontario Students Federation has endorsed us, 130,000 members. So the political pressure is now on both uh, the provincial government and Metrolinks to come to the table and do what, what they're supposed to be doing, negotiate a result to this. I, I know I just got an email from Larry who's listening to the conversation saying, well, you know, you, you let Go Transit operate with a system. It's apples and oranges. Uh, Go Transit is intercity. It's supposed to be from city to city. Uh, and obviously, they're going to go through this. Uh, the, the LRT and, and public transit, especially with uh, with HSR, is intra-city. It's, it's the transit system within the city limits. And, uh, and yes, there should be some complementary aspects to this, too. But you've got to set them up separate and apart from this. And, and the integration has to be anything that's going on within the city limits has to be integrated with the existing transit system. That only makes common sense to me. Uh, you know, it, it has to work in tandem. You can't have two separate systems working side by side. The reality is when that train breaks down, uh, you're going to supplement that service with bus. And, and we have to work cohesively to solve the problems as they arise. Those things are going to happen. You know, it is a machine. Uh, you are going to have problems. And when those problems arise, you're going to have to call on the rest of the system to pick up the slack. That's what we do. Have you reached out to any of the provincial members and, uh, to try to get some feedback and support on this? Uh, we certainly have, and we've received a lot of support. Certainly the NDP, uh, Andrew Horbath, has been on, the, on record and sent a letter to Kathleen Wynn. Um, we've reached out to Patrick Brown. We're still, uh, I sent a letter about a week and a half ago. We're state, still waiting for him to state where he stands on this issue. Well, I'm not so sure. I mean, when, last time I talked to Patrick, he wasn't absolutely sure about LRT anyway. He just uh, It was a rather... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, oh, ambivalent answer to simply say, well, whatever the city council wants. I, I think they pretty much stated what they want here. So I, 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 it's hard to commit to something if you don't commit to the larger project. So I'm not sure where they stand on that. So that, that's got to be a little frustrating for you. But you would think that, uh, well, the government member here is Ted McMeekin, of course, uh, and, and, and you would like to get some clarity from Ted as to what the, the government stance is. I know that he's quoted, uh, we had him on CHML just the other day, uh, said that he talked to uh, Transportation Minister Del Duca about this as late as uh, last week and said Del Duca is looking into it very seriously. Well, <laughs> it's been eight weeks. Uh, Mr. Del Duca is a pretty smart guy. I'm pretty sure he's made some determination by now. Uh, absolutely, and I'm sure that, uh, you know, we reached out to Stephen Del Duca a number of times now. We had actually had a meeting scheduled uh, just prior to the council decision to support our motion. Um, and then that meeting was pulled shortly thereafter, according to uh, his secretary, he had something else come up. Um, but uh, as you said, he's had eight weeks. It's time to uh, answer our calls. It's time to sit down at the negotiating table, which is all provided for within that memorandum of agreement. Uh, you know, I'll read the, the last page where it says, with the exception of the confidentiality clause, this agreement is an expression and is intended to form the basis of negotiations between the parties, the city and the province. So let's get to the negotiating table. Let's resolve this, and let's move forward on this project. This is why I've, I'm, I'm so astounded that the province hasn't responded. This, this is not a, a manifesto that you've given them, or that city council has given them, frankly, that says absolutely, positively, you have to do this. It just says, this is what we support. Let's sit down and, and, and do some negotiations and try to find a way to make it work. Uh, which which sounds pretty benign to me. It doesn't sound as if it's being confrontational in any way, shape, or form. We've said this from day one, Bill. We want the province to sit down, not just on this project, but going forward. We believe if we work cooperatively and work together, we can actually save a lot of money to be put into other projects. You know, we don't want another fiasco. We, you know, the whole hydro uh, fiasco where we see $40 million uh, being wasted over the next 20 years. We don't want that for transit. We want to make sure that we work cooperatively to get the best for our money. Well, and let's face it, if, this fa in fact, this project goes through the way they're suggesting it could, uh, there will be a B line through the Hamilton east to west. Uh, there will be an A line at some stage, too, that's supposed to head up to the airport. Uh, so there's going to be a considerable amount of money, and it would be kind of nice to get it right from the get-go instead of saying, okay, we're going on to phase two. Let's not make the same mistakes. Uh, my suggestion would be let's not make the mistakes in the first place. Correct, correct. We, we've got a lot of, this is the start of something going forward. You know, transit is in transition, not just here in Hamilton, but throughout this province. And we believe that the uh, nation builders who've, who've run these transit systems for over 100 years, not just in Hamilton, Toronto, uh, TTC has been around for 150 years. 
So we've been running transit. We have the experience and we have the, the best capabilities to ensure that we transition uh, to the next mode of transit. And that next mode is LRT. We got to make sure that we got, you know, approximately 30,000 workers in the province that work in transit. Let's transition those workers over to that next uh, phase of transit. There isn't a government around municipally and probably uh, provincially over the last number of years that hasn't beat the drum for transit and said, well, we have to do something about it. I mean, we're, we're in that ballpark right now, Eric. It's about time that we work to, I would think, cooperatively here instead of trying to you know, beat each other over the head. That makes the most sense to me, Bill, and we, we have to hope that the Premier agrees. Eric, thanks again for the time. We'll stay in touch as this uh, evolves, hopefully uh, favorably, over the next little while. And uh, have a great anniversary tonight. Thank you, Bill. You have a great day also. Thank you. Eric Tuck, president of the ATU uh, Local 107. Still waiting for the phone to ring from the uh, the provincial government. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. I want to talk about behavior. The behavior of our members of parliament. And uh, if you have ever been brave enough to actually click on the parliamentary channel and, and watch question period uh, from the House of Commons. Uh, you know what we're talking about here right now. Uh, of course, the behavior that goes on there, the catcalling, the desk thumping, it's uh, its bizarre, uh, and it's uniquely Canadian, I guess. Well, it, I guess it gets worse in some other countries. But uh, Samara Research actually in Canada did a, a survey w- among members of parliament and got their opinions about the behavior that goes on during question period, and more than half of them said that they were embarrassed and in some cases upset by this because uh, some of the insults that are hurled back and forth on a regular basis are sexist, they say, misogynist, uh, ethnic slurs, and they don't think it it bodes very well at all. But the majority of them also said that they don't think they want to change it. I know, that sounds a little incongruous, doesn't it? Let's bring Peter Grafe into the conversation, uh, professor of political science at McMaster University here in Hamilton. Peter, how are you doing today? Great, thanks. Good. Listen, thanks so much for the time. Good to have you with us today. Uh, political junkies like you and me watch this stuff, and, and I, I eat this stuff up. I watch it, I'm notwithstanding the, the, the behavior, etc., that goes on. Why has it devolved into this? Uh, and when we watch some of the, the, the antics that go on in, in the House of Commons, I, I know the initial response has always been, well, it was never like this until the TV cameras came in years ago. But I don't think that's it's that simple, is it? Uh, I don't think it can be that simple. I mean, I wasn't watching it before the TV cameras came in, uh, but, uh, you know, they have been there for 40 years, and uh, things come and go. Uh, I mean, certainly one thing this report pointed out was that uh, there's been a a move both in the later years of the Harper government and now uh, under the Trudeau government uh, by the Speaker to really push for an improvement in behavior. And there's a sense among the MPs that things had gotten slightly better, although they still weren't happy with where they were at. So, I mean, there are actions that can be taken to uh, increase or lessen this kind of behavior. I mean, we might ask a kind of deeper question if, you know, part of the reason they're acting this way is because there's not actually a whole lot that they can do to influence things as, as ordinary members of parliament. And so if you take 300 bright and committed people and send them to Ottawa and uh, give them times and spaces when, I mean, really, you know, we watch this, and I think we're maybe less worried by the heckling than by... Uh, you know, the really convoluted question followed by the non-answer uh, or debates where people are really just reading, you know, a prepared script or speaking point, and we say, well, what's what's the point of taking these really bright people uh, and putting them in these situations? So I, I have to wonder whether some of the, the heckling as well is simply reflected to a certain point of boredom <laughs> part of these members of Parliament, where uh, they, right. they don't have a, a chance to, to do to do much else. I mean, yeah. there was, if we read the, the biographies of you know, great parliamentarians in Canada in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, they loved Parliament. They loved the cut and thrust of debate, and they'd usually have uh, parts uh, where they would try and share their zingers that they shared as heckling or heckles they received. And for them, it was part of it. But their debates were important because it was the newspapers who would follow the debates and report on politics in that manner. But nowadays, the debates in the House have, have none of that importance uh, the debates are done on the sort of the talk shows, and it's the talking heads who go on there and, and spin the party positions that speak to Canadians about this. So again, the debate in, in Parliament becomes really just a filling of time as opposed to uh, a real moment of the political life in our country. Hey, absolutely, and I, I don't disagree with you. I think the boredom by the backbenchers is probably a factor in this, because when you watch the dynamic of what happens during question period, you're, you're absolutely right. It's the people on the front benches. 
Uh, you know, and, and if I, I'll equate this to a Shakespearean play. They're the main players. Those are the main cast, the cast of characters. The, you know, the the opposition critics on the front bench, and of course the government members who are usually, obviously, the senior ministers. The people on the back benches, they're the, they're the chorus, aren't they, Peter? They're, they're, their job is to really just sit there and, and, and cheer on their side and, you know, and ooh and ah when they're supposed to. And they have very little else that they're allowed to do. No, that's right. I mean, that's, I think, uh, an issue with the, with the situation, that, that they are there. And, uh, you know, there's a social aspect to it that the Samara report points out that, you know, a number of them probably just get drawn into the sort of team sport aspect of it. Uh, uh, and, you, you know, you get a result which uh, isn't always wonderful. I mean, there's different kinds of heckling, and, you know, the report points to that as well. I mean, there's the ones that you spoke of, uh, the ones where if we were to use similar heckles in the workplace, uh, we'd be faced with harassment problems, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Uh, you know, it's things that I think most Canadians would not consider socially acceptable as, as things to shout out. Um, you know, there's others, though, where, you know, we have uh, people asking either questions that are, I mean, slimy <laughs> in some cases. I mean, we hear some of the questions that are set up, uh, and it's really about bombast uh, of, of making a point rather than asking a question. And we've seen the answers. I mean, we remember Paul Calandra under the, the Conservatives uh, giving non-answers, we've had the continuation of non-answers with this government. I mean, it's not just that the, the questions aren't answered, it's that uh, it's an insult to the intelligence of whoever's watching, that they just are reading a, an unrelated speaking point. Uh, you know, and again, on, on, on those uh, kinds of situations, uh, a heckle does have a role if it's done properly to say, wait a second, you're, you're not respecting the, the, the decorum of this place and the fact that we're meant to have uh, you know, more productive exchanges in this. So uh, maybe, you know, there may be useful heckles there, but we don't see them very often. Well, that's the point. And, and, and maybe it's unfair to, to hold this, that standard up of, of some of the past great parliamentarians in history. Uh, you know, I, I'm not expecting a Churchillian quote or, there, or the sort of debate with uh, Disraeli and Gladstone that we used to see in the British Parliament and some of those classic lines. And I think, I think even uh, if, if you watch the, the, you know, the Daniel Day-Lewis movie, Lincoln, of course, they, they articulated the, the civil rights uh, debate that went back and forth. And it, you're right, it got very, very uh, heated, and, and there were insults flying back and forth in those as well. But there was, there was it, it sounds somewhat contradictory, but there's almost a civility to it at the same time, and that seems to be lacking now. Yeah, well, I mean, I think if uh, the people there know that what they're doing is serious and that it matters, uh, then they're probably drawn to uh, better behavior. In fact, they probably want to listen to what's being said because they don't want to be caught out in having missed something, either a point that they could attack or something that they have to defend. But to the extent that it, it's reduced to pre-prepared talking points, uh, you're right, there, there isn't the, the, the feeling that one has to uh, improve one's behavior or to change one's behavior to accord with the seriousness of the situation. And, I th- you know, I think that's probably a difference in terms of how these members of Parliament feel about uh, heckling at the moment as compared to, to people in the past. When their job ceases to be serious, when what happens in that chamber no longer really matters, uh, then the sort of the, the call to behave better, uh, or at least to heckle in a way that's actually productive in the debate as opposed to simply, you know, being a way to deal with boredom or to play, you know, your team sports, uh, you know, that changes. Your point about this being all prefab, I think, is is a factor here too. You're, I mean, everybody who rises in question period, first of all, uh, it's it's not arbitrary as some people might think. I mean, they they describe you're going to ask a question today, you're not, uh, and that, that's the way it's going to go. The rest of you just you know ha- sit there and do what you're supposed to do. But the answers are all fabricated as well. I mean, they anticipate what questions are going to be asked, and and their 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 spinners have all worked on this, and they you know, and you're right, it's a non-answer. It usually is, well, thank you for the question, and then they cite, and by the way, you did this in 2014, so who are you to do this? And then, of course, that caused more catcalling. Uh, and, and that's, I think, adding to the frustration right now, because the question is invariably an attack question, and then the answer has absolutely nothing to do with any substance of all of the topic material. Yeah, so, I mean, I, I, mean, I think we do have a question period, which in many occasions is broken in that way, in that uh, it's not really tied to holding a government to account in a serious manner. It's more about, you know, some sort of hijinks that might catch the media attention. I mean, there are exceptions. I mean, uh, we remember the grilling that uh, Thomas Mulcair gave Stephen Harper, where he asked very direct questions. And the answers to those questions helped us understand what might or might not have happened in terms of uh, the whole Nigel Wright uh, Mm -hmm. affair. There are periods and times when uh, when question period seems to work, but, uh, you know, often it's really a a non-moment. And I mean, one of the, the responses to that might be, and I mean, the, the, the name of this report is No One Is Watching, 
uh, would be for the media to say are, uh, is putting uh, the emphasis on covering question period every day really the best use of resources if really there isn't a lot of heat or light uh, that comes out of it. I mean, in the past couple of weeks uh, with the grilling of Morneau, there's been some facts that have come out that have been useful for people to understand what you know might be a conflict of interest or not in that case. Uh, but in many cases, it's not that central, and, and perhaps we should see the media coverage and media resources be placed elsewhere to understand aspects of what's happening. And, you know, for instance, in committees, we, we don't have much heckling in committees. We've got much less partisanship in committees. There's serious discussion of particular legislative uh, initiatives or studies into important questions facing us, but Canadians never hear anything about that valuable work that their uh, parliamentarians do, or at least very rarely does that make the press. Uh, again, there may be questions of... Uh, you know, if Canadians don't really like this kind of form of heckling, if they don't like how question period is really a zoo or kindergarten, uh, maybe uh, maybe there's a space for the media to show us some other things that are important uh, to our understanding of what's happening in Ottawa. Yeah, and you're absolutely right. I mean, that's where a lot of the heavy lifting goes on in Ottawa is during those committee meetings, and and some some uh, very very tough questions are asked of experts, etc. And we, but they don't televise that a lot of the time. That causes an awful lot of frustration. But there is a comparator, though, Peter, and. Uh, for, for those of us that, that compare and contrast that system, if if you watch the British uh, House of Commons question period, now it's it's a bit of a different format, but uh, that I think underscores my point that there are different ways to do this. I mean, the, you know, the Prime Minister of the day stands up there and on and 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 answers questions of the day, and the rules suggest that he has to, or she in this case has to answer the question. Uh, there's very little catcalling, mind you. They don't have desks there; they're all sitting. In, in, in benches and rose benches like that, so I guess they don't have that, that tool to pound on, etc. But it just seems to be a, a much more civil approach to this whole thing. And there, there are groans, etc., when some of the answers are given, uh, and, and that's allowable in a situation like that. But just, they, they seem to have a little more respect for the process than we have over here in Ottawa. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, you're right in saying that there are differences, and some of it is probably cultural and hard to change, but, I mean, there are important differences, uh, for instance, in that they don't have speaking notes. <laughs> yeah. And so, uh, you know, people can't have the well-wound-up question. They have to ask things a bit more directly. And the answers, likewise, won't be reading off some sort of briefing paper. I mean, I knew someone who once worked in the Privy Council office, and his job was to go in at 4 o'clock every morning and prepare a question period in terms of, you know, what information might the ministers need to be able to answer your questions based on what, you know, the, the emerging news stories were. So, I mean, there's that degree of preparation. I mean, it's still brief ministers or the prime minister in the British case, but, you know, there's less of an expectation uh, because they won't be reading off particular things. So that would be a, a difference. Uh, you know, as you pointed out in the Canadian case, the parties have a lot of control over question period in terms of telling the speaker who they should call on to ask the questions rather than the speaker choosing them themselves. And, Again, there might be uh, reasons to think about ways of changing that form of party control so that uh, it is a bit less scripted in that manner and there'd be a bit more extemporaneous uh, questioning and answering. Well, exactly. And even when a backbencher does uh, get permission, really, from his own party or her own party to ask a question, invariably it's to toss a softball question at one of their own ministers so that the minister can get up there and, and again, nail those talking points. Your, your, your point is bang on. The, everybody stands up there. They've got a script in front of them. Uh, take that paper away from them and just talk. And I think you'd probably see a lot more civility and maybe a little more honesty and integrity in the process. You've got a lot of optimism, Bill. But <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm not suggesting it happened, but I guess the frustration, though, Peter, is, is that you know various speakers and various governments of the day have said, yeah, we, we have to do something about this. I mean, when Andrew Scheer, who's, who's now the leader of the Conservative Party, when he was the speaker, he said, yeah, I'm going to rule with an iron fist here. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop that kind of craziness that goes on. And that usually lasts for a day or two, and then they're right back at it again. Yeah, well, I mean, it's, it's a difficult position uh, in that, I mean, it's a bit like being a, a grade school teacher, right? You can be, <laughs> you can be very strict, but uh, if you really want to be effective in, in controlling that classroom environment, you do need the cooperation of the students. They have to want uh, it to work as well that way. And so if you do become too heavy with, with, the, uh, with the discipline on these questions, you may lose them, and they may just come to, to not respect the, the speaker, and that will have a kind of longer-term consequence. But I mean, certainly uh, the speaker is an important uh, figure in it, the party leaders as well. But I mean, the parliamentarians themselves, I think, really need to step up their game. I mean, the, the, the report that came out did show that the majority of, uh, you know, heckles were related to the sort of specifics of what was being said or the sense that there might have been an untruth said. But there were still plenty of heckles that were about people being dumb uh, or fat 
or uh, you know a number of other characteristics uh, you know that would uh, spark human rights complaints under human rights codes. Uh, and it's surprising to me that the parliamentarians themselves don't uh, enforce that with their colleagues to say ultimately, you know, that's not acceptable. What? Why did you come here to Ottawa to be, uh, you know, catcalling in a manner that you wouldn't even be able to do now in a, a, a schoolyard, uh, given all the anti-bullying stuff that goes on? I mean, there's there's a there's a necessity, I think, to really for the parliamentarians themselves, beyond the leaders, beyond the the speaker, to really look in the mirror, in a sense, and say, yeah, if we don't like what's happening, we can't just complain that it's happening. We have to actually call out our colleagues and say, is this really what you're proud of having done today uh, in the service of the Canadian people? Let me ask you about the, the school analogy. I'm glad you brought that up. It's a very apt, I think, to script to her. Uh, th- and the role of the Speaker of the House in situations like this, do they have to rule with more of an iron fist to toss somebody out every now and then, uh, you know, like a referee does if the game's getting out of hand in a hockey game? Uh, set an example. I mean, it used to happen with some regularity for people that went above and beyond. It doesn't seem to happen much anymore. Uh, maybe that that sort of attack uh, would, would send that message that, guys, you got to play by the rules here. Yeah, I mean, I think historically people have been tossed from the Commons most often for uh, calling someone else a liar and refusing to take it back. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think that's been, or to challenge the speaker because they felt that some decision was made that was just completely unacceptable, and they were willing to take the symbolic price of being ejected from the chamber. Uh, I think we've seen it less in terms of these forms of behavior historically. And so I think that's one reason why the speaker is a bit wary of, of throwing people out, because... Uh, you know, it could mean that they look bad in the eyes of their constituents, although if no one's watching, maybe no one really cares <laughs> at that <laughs> level, right? So it's not that much of a sanction. Uh, but the other danger is that the person who, who gets thrown out, uh, you know, can go is in front of the media and can say, no, I wasn't thrown out for this or that reason. They, they can really define the narrative where the speaker doesn't have that ability to really justify their decision beyond what they say in the moment, namely that, you know, you're being ejected for this reason, that, you know, you're not respecting the rules of decorum in the House. Um, and so, you know, politically, it, it's maybe hard for the speaker to make that stick because the person who's then ejected has all the freedom in the world to, to portray what has happened and maybe to make themselves into some kind of folk hero standing up to the, you know, the hidebound rules or a speaker who's not listening uh, or to be standing for a minister who hadn't properly answered a question even. Uh, yeah, I guess we love Mavericks, don't we? <laughs> that may be part of the problem. Peter, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for the time today. Great talking with you. You're welcome. Take care. Peter Grafe, of course, a political science professor from McMaster University. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.